TED Audio Collective. I think it's fair to say that many people close to me think I'm a pretty optimistic person. They tell me an issue they're dealing with and I'm like, oh, but here's the bright side. When I have some of my own challenges, I'm like, this is terrible, but I know some good will come out of it. So much so that I've had to learn to embrace negative things and be okay with them. I've had to learn to ask my friends, what do you need from me right now? Do you want me to be a cheerleader? Do you want me to sit with you in these trash-talking feelings? I can go there. But my dominant tendency is to say, you got this. This is going to be okay. And sometimes people don't want to hear that. Honestly, I try to see the best in people in situations. A lot of this is linked to my faith. Now, I did grow up in New York, though, and I'm no fool, and I know shady when I see shady, and I don't trust that everyone has your best interest at heart. Like, when you're walking down the street and somebody says to you, hey, beautiful, you turn around only to have them ask you for $5, or when you get an email from someone you haven't heard from in a long time, I'm talking about five to 10 years, you catch up, make up for lost time, and then a week later they ask you for something professional or another type of hookup. Stuff like this makes me feel cynical, and rightfully so. But is this cynicism productive or unproductive? I'm Madhupak Enola. This is TED Business. Our speaker today is Jamil Zaki. He's been studying empathy and compassion for years, and he recently became interested in a phenomenon he calls the cynicism trap. He warns that cynical thinking makes us lonelier and more divided, and argues that compassion and optimism just might be the antidote. Then after the talk, Jamil will join me for a conversation on the role cynicism should play in our lives. He'll give us some tools to help us pull ourselves out of the cynicism trap, and he'll explain the very important difference between cynicism and healthy skepticism. But first, a quick break. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on trends in technology. Well, now you can invest in what's trending, in artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas you believe in. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy all the stocks in a theme as is or customize to better fit your investing goals. All in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Hey, TED Business listeners, we're supported by our friends at Working Smarter, a new podcast from Dropbox exploring the exciting potential of AI in the workplace. Working Smarter talks with founders, researchers, and engineers about the things they're building and the problems they're solving with the help of the latest AI tools. Tools that can save them time, improve collaboration, and create more space for the work that matters most. On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai. 
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. This is it. Here we all are, together, at last, to talk about optimism. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Here's the problem. It's 2021. We are living through a global plague, one that revealed our worst instincts at the worst times. We are so divided that public health has become a power struggle. We pioneered a vaccine, a moon-landing-level innovation, and then kept it among wealthy countries while poorer ones suffered. Against this backdrop, isn't talking about optimism like discussing pagers or horse-drawn carriages? Isn't optimism obsolete, backwards, and naive, given all we've been through? Shouldn't it be replaced with a more up-to-date cognitive technology? Well, lots of people have replaced it with cynicism, the notion that humanity is greedy, selfish, and dishonest. In 1972, 45% of Americans thought that most people can be trusted. By 2018, that had dropped to about 30%. We are living through a cynicism epidemic. I should know. Last year, it infected me, and I'm supposed to be immune. (laughs) I'm a psychologist and neuroscientist, and my whole career, I've studied the sunny side of human nature. My lab and I have found that giving away money activates similar parts of your brain as eating chocolate, and that helping other people through their stress calms our own. Our punchline is clear. There is good in us, and it does good for us. Now, people love hearing this, but in 2020, I started to hate saying it. I was building hope in others while losing my own. I was evangelizing for human kindness all day and then doom-scrolling at night. I was peddling something that I would never want to buy anymore. I felt like a fraud, or at best, maybe a fax machine salesman. (laughs) But, But here's the thing. You might think that cynicism is a system upgrade that allows us to see who we really are. It's not. It traps us in a version of the world we don't want to live in and one we don't have to. One of my favorite studies of all time occurred in southeastern Brazil. Two fishing villages there are separated by just 30 miles. One sits by the ocean, where fishing requires large boats and heavy equipment. To make a living there, fishermen must work together. The other sits by a lake, where fishermen strike out alone on small boats and compete with one another. Years ago, researchers tested how people in each of these villages responded to a set of social experiments. Ocean fishermen trusted strangers and cooperated with their neighbors. Lake fishermen competed and mistrusted instead. But here's the crazy part. These folks didn't start out any different from each other. But the longer fishermen worked on the lake, the more they competed. The longer they worked on the ocean, the less they did. 
Some families, schools, and companies are like ocean villages. People trust because they know others will earn it. Some are like lake towns. People look out for themselves because no one else will. Our social worlds shape us like clay into hopeful or cynical versions of ourselves. And right now, many of us are living in a lake town of historic proportion. Inequality has soared, injustice is all around, self-interest might as well be pumped into the water supply. These forces raise cynicism, and so do times of disaster. After the last 18 months, there's a real chance we could tip into a sort of cynical permafrost. Now, I'm going to guess that there might be some proud cynics in the audience today, and you might be thinking, good, more people should turn to the dark side. Optimism might feel nice, so would calling tiramisu a health food, but we don't get to, get to go around believing whatever we like. George Bernard Shaw tells us that the power of accurate observation is commonly called cynicism by those who haven't got it. <laughs> 107 years later, the cartoon philosopher Lisa Simpson taught us that as intelligence goes up, happiness goes down. Maybe hope does too. Maybe cynicism is the price of being right. Most people think so. 70% think cynics are smarter than non-cynics. 85% think they would make better lie detectors. Most people are wrong. It turns out that cynics tend to perform less well than non-cynics on cognitive tests, they earn less money, and they lose more often in negotiations. They're not even good at spotting bad guys. In one study, researchers conducted mock job interviews, asking half the candidates to lie and half to tell the truth. Cynics and non-cynics watched videos of these interviews and guessed who was lying. And cynics did way worse. More generally, they assume liars are everywhere, so can't pick real ones out of a crowd. So, cynicism might not be as smart as you think it is, but it's still powerful because our stories about each other become self-fulfilling. Cynics are more likely to refuse intimacy and cooperation. They hurt others to avoid being hurt. They tend to spy on their colleagues and suspect their friends, and other people, unsurprisingly, react badly, sometimes acting selfishly in response. In other words, by mistreating others, cynics create the exact conditions they fear. They tell a story full of villains and end up living in it. I call this the cynicism trap, and my lab explores ways that people fall into it. In one study, we asked people how happiness works. Some thought that it's a zero-sum game, meaning that as one person's happiness goes up, another person's must go down. Now, they're wrong. It turns out that when we act generously towards others, that tends to increase our happiness. But cynics acted on their illusion. When given chances to help strangers, they were less likely to do so. They ended up less happy as well. By hoarding well-being, they lost out on one of its key ingredients, other people. In other work, we asked Republicans and Democrats what it would mean to empathize with the other side. Some people saw politics as a war and thought empathy would be as useful as bringing cotton candy to a gunfight. These folks didn't want to cooperate with the other side or even to know them at all. In one study, we measured college students' cynicism about empathy and asked about the friends they made on campus. Now, this was a pretty liberal campus, but nonetheless, non-cynics managed to find ideologically diverse friends. Cynics stuck to their own kind. Now, that's, of course, they're right, but most of us wish our country was less divided 
And empathy is critical to moving us towards that goal. By giving up on it, cynics lose that chance. Our studies and many others give us a clear picture of the cynicism trap. When we decide everyone's out for themselves, we stop seeing their kindness. When we think the world is zero sum, everyone becomes a potential enemy. These views spread across us too. Parents pass on their suspicions to their kids. Politicians act in bad faith and damage voters' faith in each other. Media companies trade in judgment and outrage. Our cynicism is their product, and it is a growth industry. So no, cynicism doesn't help us see reality more clearly, but it does change reality, poisoning our relationships, our lives, and our culture. It is not a system upgrade; it's mental malware. But we don't have to accept it. We can take control of our stories. To escape the cynicism trap, we have to. My lab tries to help. In one study, we taught people that happiness is not a zero-sum game, and that helping others helps us too. These folks, compared to those in a cynical condition, donated more to charity afterwards, and they ended up happier as well. In other work, we changed how people thought about empathy in politics. Some people were randomly chosen to read a cynical essay. It began, and I'm paraphrasing. You might think that empathy is a weakness that will make you lose every argument, and you'd be right. <laughs> Afterwards,、uh, we asked these folks to write a note about gun control to someone they disagreed with, and they sniped at each other. Here's a voice actor reading what one Democrat wrote to a Republican. It's hard not to state this bluntly. You should be in favor of stricter gun laws because you should care about the lives of other people more than your outdated feelings of machismo. And here's a Republican writing to a Democrat: People need to know they are able to have the freedom to bear arms in order to protect themselves. You Democrats don't get to take that away from us. Basically, we recreated Twitter by accident.、Um, <laughs> other people read a different essay. It began. You might think empathy is a weakness that will make you lose every argument, and you'd be wrong. And went on to describe empathy as a strength in politics. Again, we asked these folks to write to an opponent about gun control, but this time things changed. Here's a Democrat. There are some common sense regulations that we should implement to keep people safe. We all want what is best for the country, and there are things we can meet in the middle on to tackle the issue of gun violence. And a Republican. Horrible crimes can be committed using guns. Everything from school shootings to murders because of racism and white supremacy. It's very understandable that you think it makes sense to make gun laws more strict. We're all reasonable people, and we just want what's best for our loved ones. To us, this was wild. Remember, just like ocean and lake fishermen, these people did not start out any different. But just reading one essay turned some of them into new optimists, and others into new cynics. This shaped how they acted and their effect on other people. We sent all of these notes to people who really disagreed with the writer about gun control, and found that notes written by new optimists were more persuasive than those written by new cynics, more likely to make other people change their mind. In other words, we taught these people that empathy was useful. They used it, and it became useful. This is what I want you to remember, and what I want you to know: that if cynical stories can become self-fulfilling. Our work shows that hopeful ones can as well. Now, cynicism is not the only root of our problems, and optimism alone will not fix them. But it's hard to change a broken system if you think it's a mirror reflecting our broken nature. 
If people are selfish to our core, then toxic laws and practices are here to stay. But we can all choose to tell a different story. We can be skeptical, demanding evidence before we believe in people, but hopeful, knowing they can change for the better. We can notice their kindness even when the media doesn't and envision systems built on that kindness. We can find other people in our neighborhoods, unions, and faith communities who want the same thing. We can use our collective optimism to build pockets of solidarity and mutual aid, miniature ocean villages that can grow over time. Now, this is the part of the talk where I'm supposed to tell you how I cured my own cynicism, but the truth is, I still struggle. Depending on the day or the hour, I promise I can be as cynical as anyone here. But I see cynicism for what it is, a psychological quicksand that will pull me in deeper the more I move through it. So I fight to believe in people, not because it feels good, but because stories matter, and we're telling ours all the time together. We all get stuck in quicksand sometimes, that's okay. But the next time you manage to pull yourself out and find some faith in humanity, try to remember to reach back and grab someone else who's stuck until more of us can make it to solid ground. Because optimism is not a relic of the past. It's one key to building a better future by letting us see it more clearly. Thank you. Support for TED Business comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash tedbusiness. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash tedbusiness. Odoo, modern management made simple. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Jamil, it is so good to have you here today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for, for having me on. So, Jamil, can you clearly define cynicism for me? Because I feel like I mix it up with a lot of different things. Well, you and everybody else, I think cynicism can be a slippery concept. The way that I view it and the way that social scientists view it is kind of as a theory about humanity, a belief that people have that in general... Other people are selfish, greedy, and dishonest. Now, it's really important to say what cynicism is not. Some people believe that the opposite of cynicism is naivete, just blindly believing and trusting in everybody. Mm-hmm. That's actually not, in my opinion, the opposite of cynicism. Both cynicism and naivete are really broad assumptions about people. Yeah. The opposite of both of those is skepticism. 
Skepticism is being agnostic and open to new information, not having any assumptions or having very few assumptions about people and waiting for evidence to learn about them. And for instance, whether you can trust a particular individual as opposed to believing you can trust everyone or you can't trust anyone. Oh, I like that. I think that's incredibly helpful because I was actually trying to think about what am I cynical about? And Mm -hmm. for instance, I was out of the country. And, you know, when people come up to me asking questions, I'm always like a little skeptical. But I, before you mentioning this, thought it was a good example of me being cynical. Like, what do they want? Should I trust them? But that distinction is really key. You talk a lot about human connection. Can you tell us more about how cynicism affects human connection? Because if we're trying to make sure we don't devolve into being more cynical, what are some of the costs? The costs are extraordinary. You can think of cynicism as like an acid that dissolves the ties between people slowly and perniciously, right? And it starts with the people we see out there because we often interact not with the people who are actually out there, but with the people we imagine. So if you imagine the worst, you end up in this defensive posture. You end up, for instance, monitoring people or threatening them uh, to make sure that they don't take advantage of you. In some cases, you even end up cheating or lying first in order to not be the victim, right? The problem is that when you act in a cynical way towards someone, oftentimes you bring out the worst in them. Because what does it feel like to interact with somebody who doesn't trust you? You immediately understand that you're not going to have a connection with this person and you default to your own defensive posture. Yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. And at the same time, you know, I'm going back to this definition, the idea that people are inherently selfish, greedy and dishonest. And I'm thinking about corporate scandals, the Mm -hmm. VW scandal. Mm -hmm. I mean... I actually have been watching the uh, We Crashed uh, Netflix. Uh, and, you know, that that show and our knowledge of certain organizations like We Work and Others yep. have shown that that behavior exists. And so, again, tell me more about how I'm supposed to reconcile some of these things. No, it's it's such a great question. And you're watching We Crashed. I, I'm watching The Dropout, you know, the uh, Theranos story. So we've all got these yes. stories in our culture. And, you know, I think that one, of course, there's vast amounts of corruption, selfishness, and violence in the world. And you never want to diminish the real harm that people are doing, right? So I don't think that in in proposing an anti-cynical framework I'm at all trying to diminish the lived experience of people who really have plenty of reason to distrust others. Cynicism can be a reasonable response yeah. to an unreasonable world. I think that what What I go back to is whether those awful examples of greed and corruption represent who humanity really is or represent an aberration. Mm -hmm. That's the big question, is who are we as a species? Not whether we are capable of horrible actions, but whether that's who we really are. And I think that what cynicism does is it takes the worst examples and sort of spreads them across our conception of who we really are. And that's a dangerous position for any of us to be in. It's reasonable to feel cynical. I I totally get it. I I feel it myself. But the research is very clear that cynicism doesn't help us solve any of these problems and in fact makes many of them worse. 
what are some practical tools that you would recommend that we use to get ourselves out of this trap when we are feeling it? Well, first of all, I think of us as having many tools in what I would call an anti-cynicism toolkit, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Lots of different strategies we can apply. One is simply to be aware of our biases, right? I think it's important to realize that left to our own devices, we tend to pay more attention to the worst things that people do than the best things that they do. We remember immoral actions more than moral ones. We gossip more about people's bad behavior than their good behavior. And our media ecosystem, of course, feeds into all of this and ends up giving us an extremely skewed perspective of who's out there. So knowing that, can hopefully help people recalibrate their ledger. The second thing that that I would suggest is to ask yourself whether when you imagine what someone else is feeling, what their motives are, what they want from you, whether you really have evidence for that or not. And if you don't, to just ask people more questions. Mm. I think oftentimes we don't give people a chance to explain themselves or to express what Mm -hmm. they want in interactions with us. And I think that if we did that, we would often be astonished by what we learned. The second thing that that I would suggest is to be much more aware of the power that we have when we decide to trust somebody or not. Oftentimes, we think of trusting someone in terms of our own risks and benefits. We think of trust as a vulnerability that we take on. Mm -hmm. We don't realize that trust is a gift we give to others. Study after study now show that when one person trusts another, that second person, they see that the Mm. first person believes in them. And because of that, they want to step up and meet that belief. So if cynical thinking can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, so can trust. If we understand that trust is not an act of fragility and vulnerability, it's an act of power. Nice, nice. I like that a lot. What about for a company in the business world, what are some of the big picture effects of having too much cynical thinking in an organization? Well, there's so many. For one, at a bottom line level, cynicism is extraordinarily expensive. It costs a lot of money to mistrust other people. Mm. There's a name for this in economics. It's called transaction costs, which are the costs of contracting, monitoring, and then usually fighting about uh, who's to blame when something goes wrong. And it turns out that organizations spend uh, just exorbitant amounts of money on transaction costs, both within and between companies. I mean, we're talking about legal fees and other sort of other Mm -hmm. costs that really boil down to the costs of not having a strong relationship. Yeah, and then, you know, add to that the emotional part of it, how emotionally taxing, and then you're absolutely not even getting the best out of your people because they're always thinking about, wait a minute, is this person being selfish, greedy, or dishonest, or whatever? So um, costly on multiple dimensions. Yeah, your people feel really isolated and alienated, but they also are unwilling to work together in efficient ways. There is a lot of evidence that when people are cynical about their workplace, they're unwilling to share their perspective. It's called knowledge hoarding, Mm -hmm. and it slows down Mm -hmm. the efficiency of every organization. And so the more cynical that you are, the more you say, well, why would I share what I know with the person sitting next to me if they're my competition? But that in turn kills creativity, productivity, and innovation as well. Jamil, it has been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for taking out the time. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. That's it for today. 
This episode was produced by Transmitter Media with help from Jordan Bailey and fact-checked by Matias Salas. Special thanks to Anna Phelan, Michelle Quint, Corey Hajim, and Colin Helms. I'm Madhu Bakanola. Talk to you again next week.